Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we begin an Easter series this week called The Suffering and Triumph of Jesus. So turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 to 27, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Anticipating the Cross. We will be celebrating Easter in another two weeks. Easter is the focal point of the Christian faith. Easter is the glorious celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. It celebrates that death has lost its grip, that death has been decisively defeated. For those of us who are looking for proof that God exists, Easter provides that proof. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus demonstrated that he truly is the son of the living God. For those of us who have lost loved ones this last year, Easter provides hope that death is not invincible. For those of us who are filled with fear, Easter can remove the fear of death from us forever. Paul declares, where, O grave, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Easter is hope. Easter is confidence. Easter is the reason to believe. But before we get to Easter Sunday, we must pass through Good Friday. We must pass through the cross of suffering. And before we come to the cross, we must enter into the passion of Jesus. Were it not for Christ's suffering and his passion, there would be no good news. Before we come to the empty grave, we must speak of suffering, of sorrow, of painful obedience, of agony, of humiliation, and of death. I want to help prepare to celebrate Easter well. Easter should be the biggest party that we have on this side of heaven. It should be bigger than Thanksgiving, and it should be a lot bigger than Christmas. That's because Easter is the reason for our faith. So how do we do that? How do we celebrate well? Let me suggest that because our country and our culture tends to make precious little out of Easter, it's become an alarming matter in many churches that we no longer make Easter the biggest celebration of our year. You know, for most churches, Christmas has eclipsed Easter. Look, Easter doesn't have Frosty the Snowman and lights on our houses and Santa Claus and the pressure to buy stuff for our kids. You know, kids don't wake up bright-eyed on Easter Sunday morning the way they do at Christmas. And Easter doesn't have all the church presentations and the parties and the decorations and the really big show. And for all of those reasons, Easter has become a lesser celebrated event, subdued, easily forgotten, very little going on. You know, many churches no longer celebrate Good Friday. Rather, they fold a whole Easter celebration into one event. It comes, it's gone without much fanfare. Now look, the Bible no more commands the celebration of Easter than it does Christmas, and so there is no divine command about this. But the reason the early church adopted the yearly celebration of the death and resurrection of Jesus long before they ever thought of celebrating Christ's birth is because they wanted a tradition to make sure God's people would not forget the central issue of the church. And truth be told, Christmas has become the high point in most modern churches, and surely that confuses people in terms of what is most important. And so as I begin a two-week series about Easter, I want to show portraits of Christ and to show the significance of his death and resurrection. As a way of introducing this, let me read Matthew 16, 21 to 23. 
Our text says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The first thing that we see from this text is that the cross stands at the center of Jesus' ministry. Our passage begins with the words, from that time. You know, these words mark a turning point in the ministry of Jesus. You know, the only time we read these same words in Matthew is back in Matthew 4, verse 17, when Jesus began his public ministry. It says there, from that time, Jesus began to preach. The first time those words were mentioned, Matthew signaled us that the private life of Jesus had come to an end. His public ministry has begun. He would never be the private carpenter from Nazareth again. Now, in chapter 16, verse 21, Matthew uses those very same words again, from that time. Again, as before, he's signaling that a major turning point has begun in Jesus' ministry. Jesus' public ministry has entered into a new phase. A a new chapter has opened up. You know, from that time, all of Jesus' ministry was going to be taken up with his coming sufferings. Jesus had now begun to travel on an irreversible pathway that must surely lead to the cross. And he would speak about it openly. But it's not as if Jesus has never mentioned the cross before. You know, if we carefully read the accounts of Jesus' ministry, we notice that Jesus lived his entire life in the shadow of the cross. There are all manner of times in which Jesus made allusions to the cross. So, for instance, look back at Matthew 16, verse 4. There he's arguing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're demanding that he show them a sign from heaven to demonstrate who he truly was. So listen to his response. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. So what did he mean? When he said that, no one could say for sure. You know, this is a reference to something, but Jesus was going to leave it a secret for the time being. You know, it's only later that we learn what he meant. Jonah was swallowed by a fish and Jesus would be swallowed by death, by the cross and by the grave. Jonah was delivered from the fish and Jesus would be delivered from the grave by his victorious resurrection. That was the ultimate sign from God. Watch for it. When that happens, you're going to know who I am. You know, but up till then, Jesus was being deliberately vague. A little earlier, before he talked about Jonah, Jesus was being asked why his disciples did not fast. And back in Matthew 9, 15, he says, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. So what did he mean, taken from them? How would he be taken? Who would take him? You see, these were hints, but he was not ready to tell them the whole story. But, says Matthew, from that time, I mean, something shifted. Now he began to speak publicly and openly without vague references, but right to the point. But what did he communicate? See, from that time means that Jesus was going to communicate quite openly that the cross was absolutely necessary. Look again at Matthew 16, verse 21. 
from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day rise. See, I want you to notice that this passage does not say that Jesus should suffer or that he would suffer, but rather it tells us two times that he must suffer. See, I think it's important for all of us to hear this. Jesus went to Jerusalem for the distinct reason that he must be arrested and beaten and tortured and nailed to a Roman cross and mocked, be forsaken by God and die, and then to be raised to life. He had to go. And why? Well, Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The pathway to forgiveness comes through a blood-stained cross. I think we need to hear this word, especially in the world in which we live. Some of us have the mistaken notion that there are a number of ways to get right with God. We can make our own specialized deal with God. We assume that all manner of roads lead to heaven. You know, get involved in spirituality and Get involved in the religion of your choice or come to terms with your inner self. Do the best you can. Try to be good to everyone. Get involved in church or get involved in volunteering and try to live free of bitterness and count on God being as tolerant as you could imagine him to be. I mean, on and on goes the list. And so we mistakenly tell ourselves that as long as we're sincere in what we believe, well, we're going to be all right. You know, listen, the problem with all those theories is that not one of them takes into account this nasty little problem of human sin and the reality of the infinite justice of God. And that's where the story of the cross comes in. Jesus' death on the cross was the only acceptable payment could be offered for an offended justice of God. I remember having a conversation with a university professor who, who was mocking me and telling me that he couldn't understand why the Christian God would get so upset with what he called garden-variety sinners. After all, he said, we're not Hitler or Stalin. We don't kill people. We're just people who have our own little foibles. And I wondered later what kind of foibles he actually meant, like selfishness, like demanding our rights and ignoring the cry of others, like willful ignorance of God like refusal to worship and be grateful to God for his blessings, or like adultery, or like anger. Are these the little foibles that we so easily overlook in ourselves? Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. I wanted to share how blessed and encouraged we are that God is continuing to use this ministry to impact the spiritual lives of so many through faithful Bible teaching. Recently, we received these words of encouragement from a listener. As I was listening, my heart was filled with much excitement, joy, peace, and encouragement. Thank you for teaching us the Word of God. And another listener wrote, thanks for these blessed words, Dr. Newfeld. As a Bible studying student, it's encouraging to hear this type of message. Thank you to both of these supporters and all who welcome our Bible teaching into your home. Make sure to check out all the ways Back to the Bible Canada can support you in your spiritual journey. For more information or to give support, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Not long ago in a television-sponsored debate, 
two non-Christians from different perspectives were debating a single Christian regarding the unique claims of Jesus. And one of the non-Christian debaters said, so you're saying that a Jew or a Muslim who's faithful and lives compassionately to his or her religion is not going to heaven simply because he doesn't believe in the Christian God. You know, on that question, I I noticed that the Christians stumbled badly in that debate, and, and many of us do as well. Listen, Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. You see that those who deny the necessity of the cross also deny the enormity of our own sins. See, we can't imagine that we have committed crimes against God. See, we've all heard of crimes against humanity, and we're rightfully horrified by those. That's what my professor meant when he talked about Hitler and Stalin. I mean, those people deserve to be eternally condemned. But listen, what if crimes against God are infinitely greater than crimes against humanity? But all of us have committed crimes against God. And a crime against God is infinitely greater than a crime against humanity. If God is of infinite worth, then a failure to worship him as we ought is an infinite crime. And it's not as if Muslims and Jews have done this, but Christians haven't. No, no, listen. Muslims, Jews, Christians, Sikhs, Hindus, Buddhists, and atheists are all guilty of an eternal crime. All of us stand condemned before God's bar of justice. All of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our most righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. All of us need a savior, one who will satisfy God's righteous requirements and wash away all of our sins. I mean, I'm open. Who else has satisfied God's righteousness by living a perfect life and by being the perfect Savior? See, that's what Jesus believed when he said he must go to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. In one of the most popular passages in the entire Bible, we hear just such a word. Listen to it. John 3, 16-19. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. One of the most dreadful realizations that any human being can come to terms with is this realization. I'm sinful. This is a moral universe, and I'm immoral. I have no excuses. I have nothing to commend me before God. My life as it is lived does not satisfy the just requirements of God. What can be done for me? You see, the good news of the death of the sinless Son of God on the cross is that he is the only fit payment for our crimes against God. And Jesus knew that. That's why he said that the cross is absolutely necessary. That's why the cross stood at the center of his ministry. That is why it always dominated his life. He had come to earth for one reason, that is to die on a cross. But Jesus was also clear-eyed about what that meant. 
he didn't have the kind of an idealized picture of the cross that, that so many of us have today. You know, crosses, well, they're common in our culture. Yeah, they're on top of church buildings, to be sure, but we have them on necklaces. It's common to see them in tattoos. I mean, they've become fashionable all over. But Jesus had a clear picture of what suffering on the cross would bring. Again, look at verse 21 of Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day rise. It's not as if Jesus was suddenly shocked to find out how cruel the cross would be. I mean, he knew about the chief priests. He knew in advance that Peter would deny him, that his disciples would flee, and that he would be left alone. He knew about the humiliation and the pain, and that's why the closer it came, the more he spoke of it. That's why he eventually prayed so fervently that he sweat drops of blood. He was moving toward great torture. He knew that, and yet he continued to willingly move towards the cross. He knew he must do this. See, I want to draw your attention to the question of why Jesus began to speak about the cross plainly now. If he had always known that he had come to die, that he must die, why did he wait until one point in his ministry? Well, the Bible records that Jesus began his ministry preaching about the coming of the kingdom of God. And so he healed the sick and he cast out demons and he proclaimed the good news. He fed a multitude of people with only seven loaves of bread and two fish. He calmed storms and walked on water. He explained the mystery about God's dealings with people. And eventually, it began to dawn on the disciples that he was more than just a man. Go back to Matthew 16, verses 13 to 17. And there we read, Now when Jesus was in the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You're the Christ, Son of a living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. See, suddenly it dawned on the disciples. If this is the Messiah, then according to the Old Testament, he would sit on David's throne and rule the nations. What the disciples had not remembered were the predictions of the suffering servant. Indeed, the problem of identifying who the suffering servant of Isaiah was, was a problem that perplexed the leading religious teachers of the day. But it was now, now, now that they finally grasped who he was, that the disciples needed to learn that there would be no kingdom without suffering. There would be no glory without the most appalling humiliation and torture of the Son of God. The pathway to triumph and celebration led through the deep tunnel of dizzying pain and sorrow. Listen to how Isaiah the prophet puts it in Isaiah 53 verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. As we read through the account of Jesus moving steadily to the cross that we find in Matthew, we notice Peter's very strong rejection of this. That's because human reason finds this troubling. Human reason rejects the necessity of the cross 
Surely not, says human reason. Why is it necessary for someone to suffer in my place? And so in Matthew 16, verse 21, we read, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed and on the third day rise. And then in verse 22, and then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You know, it's interesting how quickly Peter went from being the rock to a stumbling stone of offense. The Greek word is the word scandalon, from which we get our English word scandal. But Peter was overwhelmed. If you're the Messiah and you're going to sit on the throne, then you simply can't be defeated by suffering. Let me suggest that this is also our greatest temptation. You see, we live in a day when even so-called Christian people are denying that Jesus needed to die for our sins. Several teachers in our day even suggest that if the father called on his son to suffer, well, they say that would amount to cosmic child abuse. Surely forgiveness can be found without the need for a cross. I'm telling you why we need to reclaim Easter as the biggest celebration of the year. I'm telling you why we need to reclaim this. I'm telling you why we need to revive our interest in a blood-soaked cross. I'm telling you why we need to refuse any image of Jesus that does not include his suffering and dying for our sins. So in the next two weeks, as we anticipate Easter, let me help you see Jesus as the stone the builders rejected, yet the capstone, as the one who through his blood sealed the eternal covenant, as our great high priest, as the Lamb of God, as the one who has defeated death. Let's celebrate Easter as the greatest celebration that we have. John, as as we enter into the Easter season, would you agree with me that we really need to, to really focus on this season as being as important as it is? Yeah, I really think we do, and I think we need to find ways of recapturing ancient traditions and bring them into our church so that we find ways of celebrating. I mean, it's been so easy for us to celebrate around Christmas. I mean, that's the point I've been trying to make, and that, you know, because the culture around us uh, does everything to make that the biggest time of the year. But for us, we know that's not the case. And so I think we need to build in Christian traditions, and we need to find ways of anticipating the cross and anticipating this time of the year. And so I think that's homework for all of us in the believing community. Let's highlight Easter. Well, this is a great way to start the Easter season. Join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. I hope you've enjoyed today's Back to the Bible Canada message from Dr. John Newfeld. If you've been moved, I want to encourage you to check out our website, backtothebible.ca for today's message and messages from past series, just in case you're not able to listen to this fine station every day. Every program, article, blog, video is available on our website for free. A key goal for Back to the Bible Canada is to offer trustworthy Bible teaching without barrier. Special thanks to all those who make this possible. And remember, 
ask for your free copy of Dr. John Newfeld's CD series, The Missionary God Today, as our gift to you. To know more or to partner with Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.